Well, we are plugging our way through Hebrews, and uh, we are now in chapter 9 of Hebrews, and uh, we are going to walk through that passage, um, and we're going we're gonna to specifically focus on verses 11 through 14 this morning, and that's what our, our passage this morning is going to uh, be zeroed in on, so that's our, our focal verse today, our, vo- our focal verses. However, those previous 10 verses are actually important to this passage, and so we're going to uh, pick those apart briefly this morning as way of an introduction, and then we're going to nestle into those last remaining verses so that we understand uh, what the author is doing. So I'm excited about this. Uh, we haven't done this in a, in a few weeks. Uh, would you all stand as we read God's Word this morning just to honor it? We don't do that every Sunday now just because of the changes in the weather and stuff like that. But I want to do it this morning. I think it, I think it uh, bodes well for us. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats, and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Join me in prayer. Father, we ask you to bless the reading of your word and the study of your word this morning. May it not return void. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, um, as we look through this text, as we walk through this text, one of the things that you're probably noticing by now as we've been walking through Hebrews is that there are a lot of similarities in the language. And so it almost appears as if the author is repeating himself. And so it kind of brings me back to Job, the book of Job, if you've ever read that. It's a fairly long book written in poetic language, but much of Job is repetitive. It's reemphasizing concepts uh, from the different players, the different characters in that story. And oftentimes that's, that's done. In a, remember that a lot of these individuals were living through an oral history, not necessarily a written history. And so even during this time of the New Testament, it's important for these authors to make very secure in their arguments uh, what they're laying claim to. And sometimes that is done by repetitiveness and to repeat the same thing in a different way, in a nuanced way, to either bring out highlights or to bring out just, just minor differences in the, in the thought process. And so the author of Hebrews could have written his main point in basically, almost made his main point in one chapter of the book. But then we would be missing this massive compilation that he has put together that talks about the nuances of Christ and the blessings that he has that he has wrought to us and um, and that's what we have here this morning and so last in the last couple of weeks we've talked about the old covenant we've talked about what it is we've talked about why it has why it is now determined to be obsolete because we now have the new covenant that we as 
at living in the end times, living in this in the last days, the church age, that we are now beholden to a new covenant with a new mediator, a, a greater high priest, a greater king, and our savior. In doing so, though, as he's describing, what he's doing is he's reemphasizing in this chapter some of those elements that the audience would have recalled from their previous days primarily focused on Jewish customs, and now reiterating those and applying them to Christ, demonstrating how those things, while they are obsolete, they are not unimportant. And so these are some really crucial things that he's going to talk about. And that's why in the first part of this chapter, he actually brings up the custom of worshiping in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to break that open just for a minute. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this um, because honestly, there's a line here that the author uses that says, we don't have time for it. And he's right. He didn't have time to write it all down and I ain't got time for it this morning. Okay, so we're not going to break that open too much, but I do want to emphasize what he's doing because what he's saying in here is that every little detail that may seem mundane from where the lampstand is positioned to the staff that budded to what is in the Ark of the Covenant, every one of those things have a purpose. They had a purpose in the Old Testament and they have a greater purpose as they point to this new covenant that we've been talking about. So that's what we're going to do this morning uh, as we walk through here. We're not going to have points. I'm not bringing up point one, point two, point three. We're going to walk right through this and I'm going to pull out some points of application because there are points of application. And then I'm going to point some things out that wouldn't necessarily apply to us because we're not in the Old Testament. We don't worship the same way. And in fact, that's one of the main points that the author is making is that the context of the Old Testament no longer applies to you because you are now in a new covenant era. And so now, now here's the trick. Here's the thing. Some of us, because we think, and this includes me, I get a little lax sometimes that because we're not in a, in not, because we're in a new covenant era in the church era, the church age, and not in the previous age, that we are more free, and we are, to let our guard down specifically how we worship. But what I'm going to argue this morning is that because we are in the new covenant age, our focus of worship has to be even more specific, not less, even more specific. And so we'll talk about that. So let's go ahead and just start here. We're going to be in verse uh, chapter 9. We're going to start by reading the first five verses. And so I believe we've put, uh, I think Amber put the entire book of Hebrews on the slide for today. So um, I really appreciate that, Amber. Um, she knows that I may jump around, so she put them in there. That's good. All right, so let's dive in here with verse 1. It says, now even the first covenant, I tell you what, I'm going to do something that Amber didn't put in there. <laughs> I'm going to read the verse before this real quick. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Remember that line? That was from last week, because everything else is built on that verse. He's saying, what you used to know is vanishing. It is now obsolete, all right? We are not beholden to an old covenant. Remember, at this time, Christ has already died. 
He has already been buried. He has already risen. And he is now at this moment of the writing of this text is sitting next to the father, right? He is our advocate. He is mediating on our behalf. So that's where we are. Verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot, we cannot now speak in detail. So I just want to pause real quick on that. There is a lot of Old Testament review in the book of Hebrews. Now, what I want to zero in on is why in the world is the author emphasizing this? All right, what the old tent of meeting, what the tabernacle in the Old Testament looked like. Well, let me argue from the very first verse why I think he's doing this. He says, number one, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. What does that mean? It means that the people of God were not to be like other nations. You see, other nations in their pagan rituals would go through a series of rites and passages and a series of activities that were both depraved and unbiblical uh, that would lead them to what they felt was a closeness to a divine being, maybe one, maybe more. And oftentimes that would fluctuate based upon the season. And what I mean by that is that they would do whatever felt right in their own heart with regards to worship. There was very little direction in what they were to do. And so you saw different styles of worship, different directions of worship. You had some individuals worshiping one God while some worshiped a completely different God. You had some that were sacrificing uh, grain. You had some that were sacrificing animals. In some cases, you had sacrifice of humans. Um, one of the texts, I won't go into strict detail because the kids are in the back and so I won't be real explicit on this, but there were some acts of worship in the pagan world where they would have individuals in temples that would practice certain, let's say, acts with the worshiper in order to bless their life and their crops and their agricultural purpose. None of that seems similar or familiar to someone who is in the biblical text. And so what God has done is he has specifically regulated how we worship. And not just uh, like Baptists, we're going to sing verse 1, 2, and 4 of the hymn. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about even more specific than that. That it was God's direction that there would be a lampstand. It says here, for a tent was prepared and there was a first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. That is not accidental. That was directed. 
you know, for us here today, we have a little bit more freedom. You know, the keyboard can be over here or it can be over here. The keyboard might be on a grand piano or it might be on something weird that the worship leader had no idea about this morning, right? And so there are some fluctuations in that, not in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, where things rested, where things placed mattered. And this is all in the holy place. If you will, this is out front in the, of the tabernacle where many of the priests would come and perform acts of service, acts of uh, just different rituals prescribed by the Old Testament. These were not willy-nilly. They weren't making it up. It was specifically directed by God. And then you move on. It says behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Now this, folks, is where they felt, this is where God dwelt with the people in this most holy place, in the holy of holies, if you will. This is the idea. And not all the priests could go in there. So there were a bunch of Levites who were priests, but they could not go back there. There was only one priest that was allowed to do that. And that was the high priest. And he was not allowed to go back there whenever he wanted. He was able to go back there one time a year and not without a blood offering. He went back there one time a year. It was very specific. Point of application. How we worship God matters. It really, really matters. Even in our new covenant age, the the orientation of our hearts and our minds matter. I love that when we start worship, that we start oftentimes with a song that comes from Scripture or we start with literal Scripture to call us into worship because it matters that our heart is, number one, in tune with God, in tune with the Holy Spirit, and in tune with the word of truth that should be guiding and directing our worship. It matters how we worship. When I was in seminary, I took an Old Testament class, uh, Old Testament 1 or something like that, and the professor uh, was a little dry. He was a little dry, so I had to really struggle to stay in there with him, right? And so, uh, but one of the things that he said in that class really stuck with me. He said, there is a worship song that a lot of churches are singing, And the song, you all may even know it. In fact, I used to sing it way back, way back, you know, 15, 16 years ago. And the lyrics go something like this. Come just as you are to worship. That's the line. I don't even know the rest of it because I've sung it for years. But that first line says, come just as you are to worship, right? And he said, so many churches are singing that song. But he said, folks, it's not biblical. We do not come just as we are to worship. We come with our hearts and our minds focused and zeroed in on our God. Now, we're not talking about clothing. We're not talking about style. That's not what he was addressing. What he was addressing is, is that we may all come from different backgrounds and different experiences. But when we come to worship, we are coming to worship the living God of the universe. There is no question about that. There is no surplanting that. There is no substitution. We must come with our hearts and our minds geared in. Now, when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ for for salvation, we do come just as we are. We have nothing else to bring. 
But once we are saved, at that point, we do not come willy-nilly to worship. We do not come lax to worship. We are not lazy worshipers. We put our hearts and souls, or we are called to. When it says that we are to worship in spirit and in truth, that's not something with, that's not something lazy. That's not laid back worship. Folks, that is a worship that is in tune with the Holy Spirit and according to God's word. It's not just as we are. Folks, if I came just as I am to worship, all right, there are days that sometimes I would be all into it just because my, my spirit, my emotions, my feelings are just into it. And then there would be days that I'm just not into this. And so I'm just going to lay back. But the song says I can just come as I am to worship, right? That is not the orientation of a believer. We are to come with our hearts and minds focused on God. And that is what God was trying to do. A, one of the things that he was trying to do as he was designing this worship in the Old Testament. It says verse, in verse 3, Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not accidental what God had in this most holy place. They were things that, number one, spoke of truth. We have the tablets in there in his law is that you are not worshiping on your own. You are worshiping as I direct. Number two, you are reminded by the staff that budded and by the manna that I am the one that sustains you. I am the one that brought you out of the wilderness, right? And so those are things that are reminding who this God is. Let's move on to verse six. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. It would be a terrible, terrible thing for the high priest to enter into the presence of God, into that Holy of Holies, without a blood sacrifice. Because that was the point of the Day of Atonement. A sacrifice, a blood sacrifice meant to cover the sins of the people and of the high priest. Verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience. We'll come back to that of the worshiper, but the but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, what does all of that mean? Let me kind of bring it together here, okay? The author is telling us this, that there was a time ordained by God for the tabernacle to stand, for this tent of meeting to stand in the way in which it was. Even the temple, even Solomon's temple, even Herod's temple, there was a time and there was a place designed by God, regulated by God, ordered by God. It had a purpose. 
It had a purpose to separate the people of the old covenant from the nations around them. And it had a purpose of pointing them to a new and better covenant at a time when certain sacrifices would not have to be made. And so he brings it down and in verse 8. He says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. They were not allowed to simply just walk in to the most holy of place. One person can do it with blood once a year. It wasn't free. They weren't free to go in there whenever they wanted, right? And not all the priests could do it. Because they were not the mediators. They were not the one appointed to actually provide that sacrifice. So they had to do it on the outside. And so what the author here is saying is that the Holy Spirit is indicating, even in the Old Testament, that there is going to be a time when this, when this wall is going to be broken down. The separation is going to happen. It's going to be complete. And at that time things are going to be different. There is going to be a different way that we worship. It's going to have, there's going to be a different experience to it. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, meaning it is symbolic for their age, okay? And then what, what is, what is the reality of that current age? It's this, According to this arrangement of the Old Covenant, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience. Another way of saying this, which is what the, the, uh, the NIV version says, is clear the conscience. You see, what these the sacrifices were doing, they were able to purify, they were able to symbolically purify these individuals from sin, but it did not wash away sin. It did not clear their consciences of sin. It was still there. It was still not finished. There was still this act that had to be complete in the new covenant that would take away all sin once and for all. And so all these priests were going in there and and what they were doing is they were dealing only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation because there would be a time when that wall would be broken down and Christ would come and fulfill what all of these sacrifices were pointing to. These sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, even on the Day of Atonement, they were not, they were not for naught. They were not unuseful. They are not unimportant because they were regulating worship and they were pointing to something greater. So now let's get into that. Let's look into what they were pointing to. Verse 11, but... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, and thus securing an eternal redemption. And this is where the, ar- the argument is being made by the author, again, again, that Christ is the purchaser of a greater covenant because he is able to do what nobody else could do. Imagine this. God, in Exodus, calls 
the people to build this tent of meeting that organizes the worship around this tabernacle with these two places, the holy place and the most holy place, sets the the Ark of the Covenant in the right place, sets the lampstands, the bread of presence, all of these in the right places, and then regulates worship by directing the individuals, these priests, when they can go in and sacrifice, and then regulating the Day of Atonement when the most holy priest, the the high priest, can go in the most holy place and actually make that once a year sacrifice in blood for the sake of the sins of the people, right? So he's doing all of that. And all of that was constructed. It was directed by God, but it was constructed by the hands of men. Not only that, it was incomplete. It was not that it was unbiblical. It's not that it was sinful. It's just not complete. Because what it was doing was simply symbolically cleansing of sin. It wasn't actually cleansing of sin. So what is happening here in the New Testament? Christ, as the high priest of the good things that have come, what has he done? What has he done? He is, it says, he has entered once for all into the most holy places. And when he enters into this most holy place, it's not a place that is created by human hands. It is a place that was created by God. Why? Where is this holy place? It's not on earth. It's in heaven. It's in the presence of the Father. That is now the most holy place. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. The sacrifices made by the priests in that holy place were not securing eternal redemption. They were foreshadowing something that was to come. The high priest that entered once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer the blood of a lamb was not securing eternal redemption. He was pointing to Christ, who is the Lamb of God. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Now, I love that passage, and here's why. In this passage, the author is not denigrating what the Old Testament was doing. The author could have said, and he'd be wrong in saying this, but this would be the misunderstanding, and I'm afraid this is what a lot of our church folk believe, is that those Old Testament sacrifices, they were worthless. They were worthless because it's Christ's sacrifice that actually has import, that it actually has significance. That's not what the author says. He does not denigrate the Old Testament sacrifices. They had their purpose, and he says... For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So they do that. He's saying they do that. Okay? But then he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? What he's saying is that The blood of goats and the blood of heifers, they had their place. 
They were important. They were important and prescribed by God. They were a holy sacrifice. And if they were holy and had purpose, how much more significant is the sacrifice of Jesus? In the Old Testament, we sacrificed animals. In the New Testament, we had the sacrifice of the Son of God. Do you see how he's just emphasizing this even more? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Now, I want you to imagine this, that once a year in the Old Testament, the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies and would present this sacrifice, not just for the people, but also for himself, all right? Meant to symbolize the cleansing of sin at that time, the payment for sin, the redemption for sin. It was to symbolize it. The work of Christ did not just symbolize the redemption of sin. It actually purchased our redemption. It was efficient and effective for saving us, which is what the high priest of the Old Testament could not do. Christ is a greater mediator, but there's even more than that. In the Old Testament, who was the one individual who could go into the presence of God in the most holy place? One person, the high priest. That was it. But at the death of Christ, that veil is torn. And now Christ does not dwell in one specific place where we as human beings have to have some sort of earthly mediator. Christ now dwells among us. We do not need some earthly mediator standing in between us and the living God because we have Christ. We have him now. And that makes all of the difference. Now I said, I said this, I said that in some ways that the regulation of worship did not stop in the Old Testament, that it is continued on in the New Testament and might be even more important in the New Testament. And why is that? Because we have something that Old Testament believers did not have. They had a promise of something greater to come. We have the promise answered in Jesus. We have that promise answered in Jesus, which means that we have no excuse. We have absolutely no excuse for how we approach the throne of grace. That when we gather to worship, either corporately or individually, we are called to worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? It means that we are worshiping being led by the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit and according to truth. So we are not necessarily following a book of rules like they did in the Old Testament. We are being led by God himself in worship as we worship. We must be in tune with that and according to the scripture according to the truth of God. How we approach worship matters. The title of this message is called, is There is Power in the Blood. There is power in the blood. The blood of goats, the blood of heifers, the blood of literal lambs, 
cannot do as as important and as essential as they were in the old covenant age, they could not do what the blood of Christ does, what the blood of Christ frees us to do. And that's the age of the church. That's the age of this new covenant in which we are in. And so let me bring it just back home, just make this real practical for us, okay? And it's this. As we come to worship Sunday by Sunday, as we take our own time, hopefully, our quiet time to read Scripture and to pray and to have our own private time of worship, remember that that ability to worship in that way was purchased by the blood of Christ. It was purchased by the blood of Christ for our freedom, for our salvation. It's not in theory anymore. It's not hypothetical anymore. It's not something future anymore. It's present right now.